Welcome to the Bloomberg PL Podcast. I'm Pim Fox, along with my co-host, Lisa Abramowitz. Each day, we bring you the most important, noteworthy, and useful interviews for you and your money, whether you're at the grocery store or the trading floor. Find the Bloomberg PL Podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, and at Bloomberg.com. Let's turn our attention now to Donald Trump after his inauguration and the immediate challenges that he has taking office. Justin Sink is our U.S. government reporter for Bloomberg. Justin, thank you very much for being with us. Where do we start? Affordable Care Act, uh, immigration. What are the hot topics that the president, Donald Trump, will deal with most immediately? Thanks for having me. Yeah, I think it's going to be a little bit of everything. Uh, certainly the, the topics that you mentioned, um, the president-elect has talked about how he wants to take uh, executive action on border security virtually as soon as he, he enters office. Um, Republicans on the Hill are obviously very eager to roll back the Affordable Care Act. But, you know, there's a lot of foreign policy issues where he could wade into. There's ongoing diplomatic talks um, regarding the civil war in Syria. There's uh, his sort of antagonism with China. He may label them a currency manipulator and um, seek to impose new tariffs. And so I think across the board, one thing that we're hearing a lot from Trump aides is that they want to make a kind of a big splash and big impact very early, if not today, um, certainly by Monday of this week. And the idea here is to show that uh, Donald Trump, who is somebody who hasn't been in government before, is able to be effective and start fulfilling his campaign promises uh, very early in this administration. How quickly can we expect to see some Supreme Court nominees uh, to fill the empty role currently out there? So uh, it's said that they are that Donald Trump's already done some interviews that they'll be ongoing, but they expect an announcement as soon as uh, the second week of the Trump administration, and probably no later than the third week. And so, trying to fill uh, Justice Scalia's seat, you know, is something that's lingered open for nearly a year now. Uh, but. Uh, we expect pretty quick action and, and most likely a fairly quick Senate confirmation once a, once a nomination is picked. You know, we've heard a lot about the hundreds of positions within the administration that are currently vacant in as this transition goes on. Do you have a sense of who is managing that whole transition and sort of vetting, vetting different uh, people for those roles as Trump takes on these other responsibilities? So... Uh, you know, Mike Pence, uh, the vice president-elect, has been heading the transition effort so far. He's going to hand off that responsibility as he enters office. But um, it, one of the kind of interesting points that your question gets to is the fact that there are kind of different centers of power within um, the Trump White House. So there's the sort of traditional establishment, Reince Priebus, RNC uh, area. There's the Steve Bannon um you know, alt-right, different uh, different kind of Trump Republican uh, power center. And then there's the, the Trump family itself. So Jared Kushner, um, Ivanka, and, and these are people who also have weighed in, especially on kind of top-level picks. And so especially as the, uh, the administration is getting filled out, out at lower levels, there's a lot of back and forth between these 
kind of different power centers, uh, with all of them kind of needing to sign off on, especially people who have influential uh, policymaking roles. Well, uh, Justin, uh, as uh, President Obama and the Trumps uh, get ready to leave uh, the White House, one trip that uh, Donald Trump may be taking uh, relatively quickly in his administration, at least according to Sean Spicer, who's the incoming White House press secretary, is a visit to CIA headquarters in Langley, Virginia. Have you heard anything about that? Yeah, so obviously I've heard Sean's uh, comments, and and this is interesting because, you know, a a big sort of theme of the transition has been uh, conflict between the Trump team and and Trump himself and the intelligence community. I think there's going to be some attempt at fence mending there and uh, and kind of getting past the big controversy over Russian involvement in uh, the hack of John Podesta, who was Hillary Clinton's campaign chairman and, and the Democratic National Committee, something that Trump kind of publicly doubted for a long time, but has now come to accept. And so I think would be an attempt to reset that relationship. Um, we also expect in terms of sort of early travel that one of, if not his first domestic trip will be up to Philadelphia uh, next week where Republican lawmakers are having their their winter retreat. And that'll be a opportunity for Trump to meet with them and, and kind of set forward some of those policy goals that will require legislative action that, that we were talking about earlier. Justin Sink, thank you, so, thank you so much for joining us. Justin Sink, U.S. government reporter for Bloomberg, talking about what President-elect Trump's immediate steps will be after he takes office. One thing that is not up is the U.S. dollar. I want to bring in Doug Borthwick, managing director and head of FX at Chapdelaine and Company, to talk about what President-elect Trump will mean for the dollar. He has come out and said that he does not want the dollar to be too strong. What will this mean in practical terms, Doug? Yeah, thank you very much for having me. I think that one of the most important statements that the, uh, Trump has made so far is that he wants to make America more competitive. And I think that we all know, based on economics classes, that multinationals like to manufacture in countries with a depreciating currency while exporting to those goods to one with an appreciating currency. And for that reason, you see people manufacturing in China, exports that then go into the United States. Why, why would you want that? Well, you right. want that because you want to have cheaper employees and you want to earn more on what you're selling. So how could uh, President Trump effectively weaken the dollar, and would he take such steps? Well, one of, the, one of the most interesting things would be the strong dollar policy that's been enforced really since 1994, ever since Lloyd Benson was there with uh, Mickey Cantor. And back then, we were trying to do trade relationships, and dollar-yen was trading at 75. Once we had the trade relationships in place, they brought in the strong dollar policy, which then saw dollar-yen move from 75 to its current levels now. Now, what's happened since then is the U.S. has essentially become 50% more expensive in terms of its labor than maybe Japan. And so as the dollar keeps on strengthening, it makes the U.S. less and less competitive. Now, the U.S. has exported more, but what they're exporting these days is U.S. treasuries. So many countries in the world say, you know, we'll buy U.S. treasuries because U.S. currency is a strong dollar policy. The dollar will go up, our treasuries will be worth more. It's not really about the yield on the treasuries. It's more about the fact that the dollar has been strengthening. Now, President-elect Trump looks at this and says, you know what, when you sell treasuries, you're not really creating jobs. But if we wanted to create jobs, we have to have manufacturing back in the U.S. One way to do that would be to end the strong dollar policy. 
And, of course, there's another way. I mean, you laid out this scenario about, you know, manufacturing in countries with depreciating currencies and then shipping to places like the U.S. with appreciating currencies. Of course, there's the talk of this uh, import tax and and in a way for companies to make products here in the U.S. as opposed to making them in places like China. How does that prospect change the equation for companies when it comes to where they do business? Well, I think the companies are being encouraged either through the, the import tax or or from any sort of dollar policy change to be much more encouraged to manufacture in the U.S. to sell to the U.S. And I think that that's certainly one of Trump's main agenda parts. Hey, hey, Doug, I'm wondering if you could tell us about the Chinese yuan and whether there's a possibility that the value of the yuan will rise against the U.S. dollar. China's economy performing uh, pretty well, right? We got the GDP results, but also new orders in December. They were up. uh, Restocking cycle. Would this be good uh, for the yuan to gain value and therefore would help other uh, yuan-related currency pairs? Absolutely. The, the yuan is linked to the U.S. dollar through the basket that it trades off of, which is really a guide, but you know, it trades back and forth with it. When you see the dollar strengthen, you also see then dollar China go higher or the yuan get weaker. If you want the yuan to strengthen, you have to have the dollar weaken. And that's one of the key uh, points in this as well. And that the market constantly says, you know, we want to see the yuan strengthen. Well, it's only going to strengthen if the dollar weakens. There's really two ways to skin a cat. You can actually you can ask China to please strengthen their currency or the U.S. can weaken the dollar. You know, I have to wonder, people sort of came up with this idea that the dollar would strengthen as yields rose in the U.S. Now we see yields kind of flattening out for the year, dipping even uh, while the dollar declines. I mean, do you think that this can continue this dynamic? Well, I think people are very excited right now about the Fed raising rates a number of times through the year. And uh, if you remember last year around the same time, there was also the same excitement, and the Fed ended up sort of disappointing the market. I think that it's that I could see the Fed raising rates, but I think I think it's more likely the Fed would raise rates should the dollar start to weaken, and the Fed would essentially be the brakes on any sort of dollar weakness. And that's what we're expecting for this year. I think that, that certainly we can look at the differential in yields and say, well, that means that the dollar is always going to be very well bid. But it's not always the case. When dollar yen went down to 75, it wasn't because Japanese had very high interest rates. Well, Doug, just quickly, tell me about the, the dollar versus uh, commodity currencies, uh, such as the uh, Aussie dollar. Well, I think that if you do see a dollar weakness, I'd expect to see the Aussie dollar start to rally. Remember, dollar weakness will spread inflation abroad. And there's one thing that all, all, all banks are worried about right now. It's the deflation that they're seeing. They're not seeing any inflation. Dollar weakness will see inflation in commodity prices. If that's the case, obviously the Aussie dollar would strengthen. And also I think you see the, the RAND strengthen, the Kiwi strengthen, and uh, Canada strengthen. I want to thank you very much for joining us. Uh, Douglas Borthwick is Managing Director, Head of FX at Chapdelaine and Company, speaking about uh, currencies. All right, let's cut to the chase and figure out how to make some money in a rising rate environment and a bond market that can't seem to figure out which way it wants to go. Matt Freund is the co-chief investment officer and the head of fixed income strategies at Calamos Investments, and uh, they manage over $18 billion of customer assets based in Naperville, <laughs> Illinois. All right, Matt Freund, uh, what is, what is the, the word? What are you telling your clients to do or not do? Well, the first thing we're telling our clients is that 
Uh, despite the headlines, we've actually had a fairly good year in fixed income uh, over the last 12 months. So one of the, the, the things we want to remind investors is that it's a market of bonds, not just one bond market. So high yield up over 22, 23% last year, over the last 12 months, depending on the index. The broader markets, the, the ag is only up about one and a half, but active managers in core and core plus funds delivered a 4% return. So um, we don't think we're going to see the huge capital gains of the past uh, five years or so, but we still think bonds play an important role in a portfolio. So there's been a lot of talk about inflation rising and general growth prospects increasing this year. That would be bad for government bonds, particularly treasuries. Do you agree? Do you agree that this is the outlook for the year? Well, uh, clearly, it is some people's outlook for the year. I think the market is struggling with how much of the growth that we're expecting to see uh, is going to be inflationary, and inflation is generally bad for stocks and bonds and, or versus real economic growth, so inflation versus real. If we see inflation spike, and right now I think the expectations are right around 2%, so it's still manageable. But if it gets out of control, I think risk assets generally um, will be in trouble. If it's real growth, I think you're going to see stocks do well and credit continue to outperform. Credit spreads come in. I'll tell you, though, we are not in the camp that inflation is going to be a problem. We think the next quarter or two, we're going to see inflation increases. That's pretty much baked in the cake because of what we've seen in energy. Past the next quarter or two, there's a lot of deflationary pressures out there that we think are uh, aren't going to go away just because of an election uh, here in the United States. Such as what? What are the deflationary pressures that you believe are going to dominate? Because clearly we're seeing rates move higher. Rates are right, exactly. So we think that the the market may have gotten ahead of itself, but put think about the markets over the next uh, two or three quarters. There are high levels of debt, um, government not debt, not personal debt, though. Well, yeah, but you you have to look. You know, d- debt is fungible, and you're absolutely right. The the deck chairs have been rearranged a little bit, but in general, high debt levels, and by a lot of measures, were higher than we were in '08. Uh, you know, are deflationary. Strong dollar. Um, you know, How are they? You, defla- How is that deflationary? I thought that if you have an acceleration of inflation, that would be exactly what the uh, debtors would want because it would inflate away the value of the debt. No, exactly. No, you, that, that's right. Those two, those two statements aren't in conflict. So when you have a lot of debt, um, and you uh, owe money, uh, higher than expected inflation makes it easier to repay. But when you look over periods of time, economies that are burdened with high debt levels generally um, uh, have uh, lower inflation rather than higher. The next thing is the dollar, strong dollar. We're importing deflation. The next one are demographics. As societies age, you don't see as much inflationary pressure. And then finally, history is important only if you look. What we went through in 2008 was a balance sheet recession. We got in trouble because of too much debt. And when you look at past balance sheet recessions, it's just hard to get the not just real GDP growth going, but it is hard to get the velocity of money accelerating. It is hard to get inflation um, significantly higher. And that was true in the 20s. It was true. Uh, actually, it's been true in Japan for almost 20 years. So 
Um, you know, th- there, there are some long-term headwinds that we think after the next quarter or two, uh, we're still going to find tough to, to beat. Matt, so you said that you think that the inflation expectations are currently baked into the first and second quarter uh, that have to do with higher oil prices. Do you th- Does that mean that in the second half of the year you expect credit spreads to widen out and sort of a reversal of what we've seen uh, for the past couple of months? In other words, rates coming back down, credit spreads widening out, and possibly stocks uh, taking a dip? Yeah. So when you think about, uh, so again, it's going to come back to, uh, you you know, the whole inflation versus real growth debate. Uh, You know, so we're more optimistic on the economy uh, in in 2017 uh, than we were prior to the election. I think that, you know, some of the the things the new administration uh, is talking about doing, though I know that changes um, uh, pretty quickly, are going to benefit the economy. But the economy and markets are two different things. So I suspect that um, as the economy does a little better, that's going to be supportive of credit spreads. But again, credit spreads have already come a long way over the last 12 months. So we think they can grind tighter, but it's not going to be um, dramatic. So we, we expect a gradual improvement, spreads grinding tighter. I do think that inflation expectations uh, may be getting ahead of themselves. So we see some um, uh, you know, constructive movements there. And then, you know, again, when you, when you think about the level of volatility in the markets, that's one of the calls we got wrong last year. We thought with all of the, the rather significant events that were happening that really caught the market off sides, we would see more vol. That didn't happen, um, but we think that's a matter of time. So I, I expect volatility to go up and present some opportunities over the next year. So what would be some specific investments that you would be ready to pounce on in that moment of volatility? So high yield is one of them. So we're still, and my my team disagrees with me a little bit here, uh, but uh, I think that um, high yield uh, on a risk-adjusted basis is still fairly attractive. So we have positive but more modest expectations on equities over the next 12 months. We we don't expect um, losses, but again, valuations have priced a lot of the good news in. So in that environment, where high yield is yielding about five and a half, six percent, depending on what part of the market you're looking at, on a risk-adjusted basis, we think that makes sense. But most of the opportunity is in the triple C space, and you have to be very selective and very careful uh, when you're investing in triple C. So make sure you hire a good manager. Uh, we also think that loans um, can make sense here. Now, this is a very consensus right. trade. I hate being in the consensus, but I think that. Uh, uh, loans are, are the, the consensus may have this one right. And then lastly, we're not afraid of duration here. I think that um, adding out in the 20-year, 30-year part of the curve selectively makes a lot of sense. Thank you so much, Matt Freund, co-chief investment officer and head of fixed income strategies at Calamus Investments in Naperville, Illinois. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg PL podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at iTunes, SoundCloud, or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Pim Fox. I'm out there on Twitter at Pim Fox. I'm out there on Twitter at Lisa Abramowitz1. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.